Yo, everybody, Trey here from the Ednium Podcast. Hope you all are thriving per usual. Um, another great episode for you all. Uh, we sit down with a great mentor of mine, uh, somebody who's helped me navigate this space, somebody who is helping to expand how we think about systems and expand how we think about education as a whole. Uh, Dr. Landon Mascareñas, uh, my guy. He is the uh, vice president of community partnerships at the Colorado Education Initiative. Um, also the lead thinker um, and somebody who's really been pouring his heart and soul into the Open Systems Institute. And so uh, really excited for you all to hear from him. Um, great story and great conversation just around, you know, what does it mean to create an open system? How do we shift the way we think about these things? And really, what is education for? Hope you all enjoy and I'll see you on the other side. Peace. And we live. We're live. What's up, man? What's we, going on? We made it in here. We made it in. <laughs> a, it. A sea of green was a in our way. A sea of green took over downtown Denver, but now here we are. Now we here we are. We always make it through. We always make it through. How you living? Man, I'm doing good. It's been a beautiful week. The weather's changing, a little warmer. Yeah. I love that. Springtime in the Rockies. Like flipping on us, though. That's right. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. Keeps you on your toes. On your toes. That's Colorado, man. Yep. 100%. 100%. Yep. But life good, though? Life is good. Uh, there's a lot of things to appreciate and enjoy. You know, I have a unbelievable gift, which is a job that takes me all over the state. Yeah. Which I get to get to know lots of different communities. Mm-hmm. So last week I was in Leadville, Trinidad. I dipped down to New Mexico into Raton, Jeez. Canyon City, Breckenridge, Frisco, and then um, came back to Denver. That's beautiful. In like five days. You spend a lot of time in the car. Spend a lot of time in the car. What do you do on those drives? I call my friends, mm-hmm. call my family, um, stare at the beautiful scenery of Colorado, yeah. take pictures of the beautiful scenery of Colorado, yeah. and uh, listen to the news, Just listen to music. Get informed. I don't do a lot of podcasting, though, huh. although I used to. But I feel like the news is so intense these days that I'm like, I feel like I'm living it. Like I want to hear what's actually happening yeah. in yeah. the moment. So I need to like find, I need to carve out more time to like listen to like your stuff, other national folks yeah. who are doing like really good exploration of some of the big concepts right now. Yeah, man. Like just conversations. That was right. kind of the hope of the podcast is like, I feel like the news and like, I mean, a couple of reasons why we did this podcast, as you know, like so much of like sound bites we hear, you right. know what I mean? We, we only see this kind of like massive, like. Now, these are real people that are working in these things that have right. real ideas that we can explore and mostly find common ground on more things than we I, you know, couldn't otherwise because it's not good for mm-hmm. whatever the news cycle or your Instagram post or your right. Snapchat thing. So, yeah, I'm excited for it. I want We got to get to listen to podcasts. My, my kids called me old the other day because all I listened to was like sports podcasts and news podcasts. <laughs> They're like, you're washed up, dad. It's, it's over. Well, that's really, I'll never forget, actually, the first time I ever heard the word podcast was in the year 2005 or 2006. And I was mm. teaching down in New Mexico on the Navajo Nation. I was working in the after school program. And this guy I worked with was like, you should get a mic and get a podcast together for that thing. And I was like, what's a podcast? <laughs> so yeah. I feel old when you say that, because I'm like, oh, it's you been a minute. It's inception. It's yeah. been a minute, you yeah. know? But the drive thing, man, it's uh, where the pandemic actually hit me was I didn't realize how much of my processing I did in the car. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like anything from like writing to just like thinking through to like being in the house. I love my house and I love my family. Mm-hmm. But it's, not a place for quiet. 
No. <laughs> you feel what I'm saying? Like with all the kids and everything. And so I'm like, it's, I think that's probably part of the reason why you, every time I talk to you, you hit me with something like, damn, yeah, I didn't think about that. Well, you hit me with that too, man. Uh, some of our best conversations have been when I'm driving. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've had, I remember those conversations. I remember like where I was driving up to mm. Idaho Springs or Breckenridge or wherever it was or driving through to Southwest Denver or whatever. You know, I, those, I have memories of the conversations in the moments and the places that they are. And I think that when we're in the same place all the time, yeah. having conversations, it uh, doesn't stimulate the senses and the ideas that are possible, I think. Yeah, there's definitely something there. Yeah. There's definitely somewhere there. Um, but tell the world who you are, man. Let's let's tell the world um, who we're talking to and who they get the pleasure of listening to today. So my name is Landon Mascareñas, and this is where it gets really exciting to have this conversation because uh, we're right downtown here in Union Station. Yep. You know, I grew up in Colorado and California. I came to Colorado when I was 12, mm. left when I was 18, um, went to college in Oregon, lived in New Mexico for quite some time, about seven years. Mm. Uh, went back east for school and then came back to Colorado in 2014, hmm. which is crazy to think that's eight years ago now. Yeah, yeah. It'll be eight years in Memorial Day when I came back to Colorado. That's crazy. And I'm happy to talk about anything else, but that's a little bit of the kind of the places in the, that I've kind of found myself in yeah. in my life. What, what's I've always wondered this about you. Like, what do you think is the thing that really... Uh, you, when I talk to you, there's an insatiable curiosity and there's a, there's a very deep level of commitment, obviously, to community, and we'll get to some of the actual work. But, like, through your upbringing, have you ever, like, reflected on, like, what is the thing that actually built that in me? What actually kind of got me going on that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really – I've always been a curious person. My dad has a story where I was probably, like, four or five years old, and I was, like, following the San Francisco mayor's race. Really? At that point, we were living in the Bay Area. Yeah. And my dad was like, what are you talking about? And I apparently was, like, talking about who this person was and Mm -hmm. who was running. And I remember the 88 election where uh, Dukakis versus Bush, and I was, at that point, five years old. Yeah. I remember that. And I've always had, like, a real interest in politics, community, um, and just the world and the universe I sometimes tease my parents because my parents are both very curious people. Mm. My dad reads a lot. My dad loved Jeopardy. Yeah. My mom um, is an educator. She always loved reading. My mom's um, maybe a little bit more on the like education, spiritual side. My dad's much more on the like uh, history, mm. non, like you know, um, uh, management side of the, my life. And I feel like I kind of hold both of those yeah. in my life. Uh, but Star Trek was a big part of it too. I have mm. to, I got I got to give credit where credit's due. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember watching my very first Star Trek movie when I was in first grade, Star Trek V: The Final Frontier, and it just opened my brain to space and the cosmos, and uh-huh. and I just like really never stopped at yeah. that point. Yeah, that's crazy. Five years old, following with the mayor's race. Yeah. That's wild. I wasn't even aware that we had a, what a mayor was, I think, until like high school. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's your know, prodigy, prodigy. I was just like, I apparently was really into politics as a young kid. I don't yeah. know. It was something weird with that. Is there something you think that like, because I know I haven't really watched Star Trek that much, but I, I I think I know enough to know that it's 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 bigger than the spaceships and shit. It's right. the, um, I guess like the conversation around like how, I guess, like systems operate. Am I right, right. in that? Like. Yeah, I think I think at its core, uh, Star Trek is really different from Star Wars hmm. because Star Wars is kind of about this like epic opera battle between hmm. good and evil throughout the galaxy. Star Trek is at its core a story about friendship, hmm. 
It's a story about humanity overcoming its worst instincts. Hmm. And it's about um, humanity being in partnership with all races of the galaxy to explore. Hmm. And uh, that notion, which was kind of created by Gene Roddenberry back in the 60s, -hmm. first interracial kiss on TVs on Star Trek. Really? Yeah. Um, You know, the the first woman's the second officer, but then NBC tells them can't do that. I mean, Gene Roddenberry was committed to showing a, a vision of utopia mm. that he thought humans could get to, mm. that he particularly believed after his experience in World War II. Really? And so that's— He believed that after World War II. He essentially believed, and he actually thought this in Star Trek explicitly, that there there would be another war, a World War III. And then this is in, this is going to get, get deep into yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Star Trek. We, no, but we, you know, maybe, we go, maybe we go there, you know. <laughs> But that uh, there would be a World War III, and it would start in like the late 2020s, and Shit. it would, uh, and after that, Earth would be in a pretty bad space, mm-hmm. bad place, and but then from that, we would unite. It would require us to. It would finally convince humanity to come together. Oh shit! I hope it don't take that. So uh, I hope it doesn't take it either, out. especially in these ominous times we're in right now. Yeah, bro, this is this is some scary stuff. Um, I think I know I have a correlation then. So your Star Trek and uh, Star Wars is mine is uh, Naruto and Dragon Ball Z. Now, oh, I got a lot yeah. of hate because I said I like Naruto better than <laughs> Dragon Ball Z. Because in the same way, like Dragon Ball Z is, there's a clear bad guy. There's a clear good guy. We're having this battle. You know, we mm-hmm. we level up. We have these whatever. And Naruto is more this uh, how nations and groups of people interact with one another and how do you construct a society and, and those types of things. Like the story of it. Story. Yeah. And my wife always gets mad because like we'll be watching this stuff and I'm thinking like, how does that relate to like mm-hmm. like Denver politics? Right. Like, yo, you see what they did right there? Like yeah, this that is what's happening over here. this and this coalition's this thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, I always thought it was a function of just the work that I found myself in in the last like five years. But, you know, when I talked to my mom, she kind of was just like, yeah, bro, like you've always kind of been Somebody who is like, we'd be looking at a picture of a dog and you would start talking about like white grass grows or something like mm-hmm. that. And she like, she like legit that I was on drugs at one point because I was just like having this nervous breakdown and this existential crisis of me trying to understand the world around me. And there was, I knew that there was things that I was being told that like just didn't add up in practice. Right. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think I'm seeing that more and more. And I think students are becoming more and more aware right. of it. We just don't give them the credit they need when they're young. We think that they're just like tripping. I don't, I don't know. Well, I think that you're someone who cares about the big questions. No. Yeah. And you've always cared about the big questions. One of the reasons I think we really enjoy yeah. our conversations and our friendship and our camaraderie has been about the big questions in life. Yeah. Personal, professional, life. Um, and not everyone wants to go there. I've learned. We, we, like, we learned that in our life, that there yeah. are friends and colleagues who are just not interested in the big questions. Yeah. And you know what? Good, good for them. Uh, you know, sometimes I, you know, wake up in the morning, wish I wasn't, uh, so concerned about the big questions and I could just chill out and, you know, at least you have a sports aff- affinity. I don't even have that, you know? So, so, you know, someone will be like, I'll be, I was in New York recently and I was, uh, sitting down with some folks who are from Connecticut and I was like talking about their governor, their senators, yep. their, what's going on in their politics. And they're like, how do you know this? I'm like, well, I think that part of the brain that a lot of guys have for sports. Yeah. You have for politics. I have for politics. <laughs> And so that also increases the intensity. I'd like, mm-hmm. at least you have the uh, you have some other uh, vehicles for well, expression outside of the big the, questions. Well, shit, bro. Like the thing is, I can't watch basketball without like okay, basketball. But you find the big questions in basketball. Yeah, bro. Like, 
I love it. You know, it's in this like state of like the pa- the player empowerment era, and people having conversations around like the economics, right, of sports teams. Right, you know what I'm saying, and like which team is moving where, why are certain trades being made, mm-hmm. who has the real authority and power. The Super Bowl and the Super Bowl halftime performance is like a big, like a whole big conversation right now. And again, even my boys, like when I'm kicking with them, sometimes they're like, "Damn, T. Ray, just watch the damn game." Right. I'm like, I, I can't. Well, hip hop. I am watching the game. I feel like I'm watching right. the game. You're watching the bigger game behind the game. The yeah. game behind the game, and that's one of the things I also again, I, I can see that in your love of, of hip hop and of, of yeah. sports. Like you're, you love it for the bigger questions it asks. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was when we were in New York last week, and we got to see Talib Kweli at the oh, at a jazz club in New York. That's cool, and it was incredible. Honestly, yeah. he brought a bunch of people up with them, and some of the things he was saying, and the, some of the words. I was actually thinking about you quite a bit because I was like, huh. man, you would have loved it. Yeah, and it was a small, intimate show. And in those moments, I can really appreciate the power of hip hop as mm-hmm. a social change movement, as a narrative building piece. Yeah. Yeah. But similar to you, like I'm like thinking about that. <laughs> where other people there just kind of you know dancing to the yeah, to the vibing, groove. Bro. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, the beat has to be banging. Yeah. Like it does, but also has to say something, man. Well, cool. Well, I think that a lot of it is. I mean, this is it. It leads right into your work a lot, right? Um, you've inspired me. Shit, so it's like the day I met you. Um, I remember we had this like interesting conversation at Starbucks, and uh, probably a lot of espresso. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my man is like, Let me get two espresso shots down them. I was like, Good, it's all right, he's moving. Um, but more than that, man, like it was the first time in that space because, like, like, I always tell everybody, I kind of got slapped in the face with the politics of education, and I remember asking a lot of questions that weren't being, um, that were kind of being received. Like, how do I explain this? I felt like I, I entered into the space. I had questions and I was being told, sit down, shut up, be lucky that you're in the position you're in. And I think you were the first person that was like, nah, fuck that. Ask those questions. Mm-hmm. You know, like those questions are real. Like, you know, here's why this thing is set up for us not to not to ask these questions. Right. You feel me? And so like, I've always appreciated that because I think that conversation from there, along with some others and a lot of other, you know, really good people in my corner, like allowed me to take the types of steps that I took, you know, um, and move in the, in the way that I've moved. Um, I guess without fear, without fear, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You did that for me, man. And so- And I really appreciate that. That's beautiful. And I think that's in a lot of ways what I think you're trying to do with open systems mm-hmm. and like, like really try to figure out how do we create a new dialogue? How do we allow people to like walk in what they need? Um, so if you can for us, like frame open systems for us a little bit and what, right. what you're hoping to like move out of it. Yeah. Well, that means the world to me to hear you say that, man. Mm. The feeling's really mutual. I mean, you, there's few things in life that are as powerful as when you come across people who are attuned to the same vibration you are or asking the same types of questions from a totally different vantage point. Yeah. Um, but that through that mutual respect and admiration, you can actually start to get to some deeper deeper stuff. Mm -hmm. And you teach me a lot Mm -hmm. about what it means to be fearless Mm -hmm. and to live the life authentically that you want. And I think through your fearless living right now, which I'm so inspired by Ednium and the podcast and the way you dove, you just dug into the, some of the most intractable parts of ed politics in Denver, which Mm -hmm. are not exactly full of gratitude. Um, You remind me why we have to be fearless. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate that. It's no, it's very true, man. I mean, again, because we, we need to be reminded by the people we love and we are on in our life, like the value of, of, of moving into those spaces. Yeah. 
So I want to return that with reciprocity right. to you. And I want also uh, begin with a story about um, when I was, I left New Mexico in 2012. Mm-hmm. And my experience there was um, that a few things were true. One is that the uh, fundamental uh, kind of structural dynamic that I was experiencing when I taught on the reservation, when I worked in uh, indigenous education, um, when I worked in New Mexico education Mm -hmm. politics, was that there was something fundamentally misaligned between the structures of systems that were operating Mm -hmm. and the communities they served. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get that idea out of my head. Because I and I always felt like the best ideas would crash on this idea of like we didn't do enough family engagement, we didn't do yeah. enough community buy-in, yeah. And that kept me wondering, like, well, what does it mean to do that well? Yeah. What does it mean to actually take the questions of community and family partnership with a level of strategic focus and impact? And I wanted to understand the deeper question there. Mm-hmm. I left to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And in graduate school, I had a, a, a couple different mentors um, who were pretty incredible people. One was uh, a professor named Dr. Mark Moore, mm-hmm. who pioneered a lot of uh, early thinking in uh, public public system design and public system leadership, mm-hmm. especially in the 80s when it was like no one really wanted to talk about public system mm-hmm. leadership in the 80s. In the 80s, it was all about Wall Street, private sector, mm-hmm. Reagan. That was yep. the vibe. And he was kind of uh, – he helped build the Kennedy School – and helped wow. design the idea, and I know you, we've talked about it multiple times, but the, he essentially came up with the idea of the strategic triangle, which was mm-hmm. a very elegant way of understanding through public value, legitimacy and support, and operational capacity, mm-hmm. the three fundamental facets of public system design. Yeah. And then what does it mean for leaders? So I was captivated by that, because mm-hmm. to me that was like he had just unlocked some deeper question that I had been struggling with, yeah. in particular in my experience. And then I, I met a Another professor there who was a professor of practice, but uh, his name is Marshall Gans. He's pretty, uh, someone people know from working with Cesar Chavez in in California. And uh, he talked a lot about understanding ourselves and our calling and our purpose. Hmm. And through working with both of these leaders and the people in uh, my program and a variety of other folks, I came to understand that this idea of helping public systems open up to the communities they serve, although I didn't quite have that language yet, yeah. was the thing I was called to do. Yep. Because my time previously when I was in New Mexico, I had helped where I, Teach America where I was working at that time. You know, I had to really work with them and with myself to confront the kind of biases and contradictions and mm-hmm. isms mm-hmm. that were like deeply embedded in that organization and in my own identity, mm-hmm. you know, to be a white and Mexican guy, white and new Mexican guy working on the Navajo nation and native American communities meant I had to confront some deep questions around my identity vis-a-vis what I was doing there. And a part of building the native Alliance initiative and hiring its first national director and helping teacher America lead on recruiting more native Americans into the field of education there before I started to understand something. We were doing something there. Yeah. Well, well, but I didn't know, I didn't have language for it yet. Yeah. But it was like, something's there though. I just can't. Something's there. We're, we're redesigning something. We're reforming something that we're uh, uh, widening the perspective of an organization to be more receptive to the community it serves. Hmm. And then we, it became a national initiative and and it still exists to this day. (laughs) And and then while I was in school, I helped my good friend, uh, Kara Bobroff, who started the Native American Community Academy in Albuquerque mm-hmm. to launch essentially a, a network for 
indigenous serving schools where people would go and do community driven design work in their community, whether it was on the Navajo Nation or in uh, in the Mandan uh, communities in the Dakotas or in Oklahoma or in the Puebloan communities of uh, New Mexico. And we, so we built the program and fellowship for that. Hmm. So by the time I came back to Denver and uh, my graduate program, uh, the third year as a residency, I was placed inside DPS. And I remember having this conversation with the leadership at DPS. And they said, what do you want to do? Mm. And I said, I want to work at the intersection of community and school design. Yeah. Because I just, again, didn't have the language for it yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. Um, so they threw you in community engagement. They put throw me in face. Yeah. And also this team that was existed then that, that's now, um, it's not, doesn't exist anymore. It's called Osri, but it's called the Office of School Reform and Innovation. Mm-hmm. And I was half in face and half in the school reform. And my job was literally to, help these two teams work together. Hmm. That was actually my core task, yeah. which was these two teams are, one is mostly people of color. Yep. The other one's mostly white. And they have like fundamentally different, uh, they have perceptions that they have different values. Hmm. Can you hold a space betwixt and between them to come together for uh, a variety of things? I noticed you said, not that they had different values, they had the perception of different values. Perception. Tell me more about that. And, you know, you find this actually in a lot of places and organizations. It's one of the reasons why whenever I do a facilitation in the field now and I'm launching an equity task force or working in a community thinking through belonging, the first thing we do is a social identity map of values where we have everyone in the room name what their given, chosen, and core are, what they've been given in life, what they've chosen in life, and what their core values are. Hmm. I do it almost nearly every time I do an activity like that when we're calling a new group into existence. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things Mark Moore used to always talk about is like, you know, sometimes a new public has to be called into existence. Mm-hmm. And anytime we do a committee or a task force, we have to recognize that we're creating a new public uh, space, yeah. creating a new community yeah. in this room. And so a part of calling that new community into existence is saying, what are, our, what are the things that we care about in our life that we've chosen? Because our choices matter tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. They define us as people. And our core values um, really help us understand who we are. Now, the thing that happens every single time we do this activity, Tere, every place that we go, whether it's legislators, parents, community members, everyone, I say, what, what'd you learn from the thing? Everyone yeah. goes, what do you think they say? Uh, that we actually agree on more than we disagree. We have so much in common. Yeah. Our values are really aligned. And that's across race, difference, class, geography. Yeah. It is the takeaway of that activity. Huh. And so when you begin a process like that, in like a, a situation like we are in when we had two different departments in DPS, yeah. we had to like do a lot of work to kind of say, actually, there's a lot of alignment here. Mm-hmm. We just work very differently. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of assumptions about the other group. Yeah. And a part of us, we have to start to work together for some of that piece. Yeah, man. So uh, that's a long way to answer your core question was, how did I get started on this? And yeah. I came to understand what, um, my time at DPS, which I'm happy to share more about, my time at a plus in my time now at the Colorado Education Initiative was that that was the through line running through my career. Yeah, was to help organizations um, as an entrepreneur, which we talk mm-hmm. differently as like as to open them up to the communities they serve. Yeah, and to build their capacity to uh, receive that information and understanding. And when I left DPS, I started to understand this like open versus closed oh. system idea and concept. Yeah. As something that actually um, we, I'm, you know, we are, and I am borrowing from a lot of decades of literature, mm-hmm. but we weren't talking about an education. Mm. Everything was family engagement. Yeah, bro. And that's such a blurry term. Yeah. What is family? You know, you go to a different community, different places. Everyone says family engagement. We need more family engagement. What does that really mean? Mm-hmm. The new word right now that's getting muddied is equity. Equity. Everyone uses equity. That you said you said something. 
Um, and one of the things I was reading that you wrote were like, if like something means something to everyone, it actually means nothing to anyone, no one. Right. I think is the right. I don't think that's the right grammar, but you feel no, what but I'm saying. I totally feel it. I mean, this is why we have to be concerned about the sharpness of our language yeah. in social uh, impact work, in uh, community redesign work. Yeah. Um, I don't really like to. I often say, like, you know what? If if equity is helping you get to this conversation, that's okay. Mm-hmm. If belonging is, if justice is, like, mm-hmm. like because of the reality is, if we got a hundred educators lined up in a row and we said, "What does equity mean?" We'd hear really a hundred different answers. Yep. The same thing with family engagement. I think that's a fundamentally part of the problem that we deal with in our communities that we work in mm. and the advocates we work in is that um, everyone says we need more of these things, mm-hmm. but no one really knows what they actually mean. Yeah. So a part of the journey that I've been on in building the Open System Institute with other people hearing and talking to folks like you in these moments is actually getting clear on what we're actually talking about. Mm-hmm. And what is the core dilemma we're dealing with, which we can talk more about. Yeah. What is the like strategies to actually uh, solve for this dilemma? Yeah. And then what are we going to then do about it in our respective, whether we're at Ednium or at CEI or yeah. we're a national organization? Yeah, 100%. One of the things, well, a couple of takeaways from, from everything you said. Number one, I think what's so dope and is not common, actually, is that like you went to grad school understanding the question you were trying to answer. So like school kind of it served a purpose and allowed you to pull from it. I hear so often, you know, in, in, in my community or the people that I'm around, it's like, yo, just get it done, bro. Just go to school. Go get the paperwork. Right. Don't matter. Just go get the paperwork because that's going to be your like thing. And mm-hmm. it's matched with, to get to the point of the core, is like, we've been going around and we're, we're about to start these school-based design lab things. And we've been asking right. and we're, we talked to like the school leaders, the counselors, the students. Nobody seems to have a solid understanding as to like, we don't have a common definition of success. Nobody really knows why why we're doing this mm-hmm. thing we call school, and right. I like I specifically say school um, as opposed to education. Right. I think those are two separate things. They are totally you, separate. You things. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so we we keep hearing from educators themselves that like they're like I don't even know what an A means anymore. Mm-hmm. You feel me? And like when you talk to students, they're like, "Well, I'm doing this because I've been told I have to. I don't right. I don't have a core." thing that I'm trying to solve for, whether right. that be internally, because I don't have time to deal with it internally because right. I'm spending all my time doing all these checkbox things. Mm-hmm. Um, and a part of me starts to feel like, is the core the fact, Josh Scott says this, and he's going to be on here, but he gave me this language of, uh, we don't have a shared positive vision for the future. Right. We don't have, we don't know what the destination is. I, do you, How do you feel about that? Because it's been something that's in my mind lately. I think it's very true. And I think I wrestle with whether it needs to be different, but mm. rather actually our systems are the things that needs to actually uh, get with it. That the ideas that like what Teray wants and what Landon wants and what mm. uh, Jennifer wants and what Josh wants are actually going to be different things in life. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually we have to embrace this idea that a part of the unwinding of the past 50, 60 years in American society and global society is that we have a more varied idea of what success and individual, uh, life looks like. Mm-hmm. And that comes with a lot of power for us individually. But um, I think we all feel the loss of the coherence and cohesiveness of the social mores that were very clear about, this is what you do. Yeah, yeah. So I think instead of saying we need to get to like this shared definition of success, because I think that would eventually just put us all back into boxes, mm. we need to design systems that are willing to take us on whatever journey 
allow us to right allow us to explore that question right allow us to explore yeah. the question and succeed in no matter whatever which way we want to do and fundamentally i believe that is what we have to do with our modern society and the systems mm-hmm. that we're a part of we have to redesign them with communities we have to move them from closed to open so that um, folks who never had a chance to be in the design process for these institutions because mm-hmm. they were built uh, before most of them before before our grandparents from yeah. an ideation standpoint we have this opportunity now to reimagine and redesign them. And a part of that, I think, and again, I'm in a lot of these conversations with communities around the state. It has to do with individual uh, goals and aspirations. Yeah. People want to build systems now that it will allow every kid the chance to do whatever they want. Yeah. I want kids to be able to know what that question they're asking is. Right. You know, I think, you know, part of Edniam's thing is that we want people to be able to define and achieve success for themselves. Right. You know, and maybe that's the core definition is like, have you, do you have a, do you know what success is for yourself? Have you been able to identify that Mm -hmm. for yourself? And like, have you put yourself in a position where you have options to where that can expand, right? It's less about the how, small how, big what. Big what, (laughs) Uh, Uh, big what, I like that. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And then back to the, I love the, I love the strategy around all right, how do we like build these core values and beliefs and how do we kind of start from a place that we're actually kind of aligned? I've been thinking about this a lot around like, we say we want community involvement. We say we want co-creation. We had this experience early on in Ednium where I was like, I bet, like what we're going to do is we're going to get a bunch of alumni and we're going to place these alumni on these committees, the, you know, all the things that are going on right. in the district. And like, that seemed to be the game plan this was early on in our existence. And so that's how, kind of how I like saw mm-hmm. this feel like everyone's fighting and vying to get on these committees for whatever reason. We got someone on there. We patted ourselves on the back and felt like it was a success. I get a call from dude and he, uh, he goes, hey, um, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do here. And I said, why? He's like, well, I don't know. They just sent me this like 10 page document and it's Wednesday night. The meeting's Thursday afternoon. Right. Um, I don't need, it feels like they've already made up their mind, which mm-hmm. obviously will go to your open systems. But right. as we talk to more people, like they're like, I guess my question is, is like, what do we have to do to get the community prepared to enter in this co-creation space? Mm-hmm. Or are they already sufficiently prepared and just don't know it? Man, that is, I think that is such an important question. This is why I love, I love you, man. We just go to the big stuff. I love it. So let's, let's, let's like, again, uh, let's like zoom out just for a second and then like come back. Let's back into your question. Um, The question of closed versus open systems is a question of fundamentally democracy building in our society right now. Mm -hmm. And so we like, I think we have to like name that and say, a part of the thing that we're building is the democratic apparatus to be able to respond and actually do stuff with the communities it serves. Mm-hmm. That has atrophied over decades. Mm. And uh, it's atrophied for a lot of uh, important reasons to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Great Society uh, in the 60s, there was a lot of mechanisms set up for community participation and design in Head Start, early childhood programs, family mm-hmm. partnership. That's where we kind of see the like, the beginnings of the education system starting to open up a little bit yeah. in an interesting way. In the 80s, that gets a lot of it gets rolled back during the Reagan administration. What was the justification for that? Like, what was the thought process? The justification for it was uh, we are overburdened by regulation and guidance uh, from the federal government. Mm. Reagan says in his first inaugural, government is not the answer, it is the problem. 
Mm. Government's not the solution, it is the problem. Mm. Um, and there's this wave of kind of pulling back all of these requirements. Mm-hmm. Now, the Republican Party finds its way back to that in the late 90s, early 2000s with George W. Bush, No Child Left Behind, where we have Title I parent meetings again. But it's really, um, when we think about the spectrum of partnership, mm-hmm. it's really more in the inform category. Yeah, yeah. It's not in the partnership to empowerment ca- uh, side of the spectrum. But it's yeah. like, you're in a bad school. You got to know that. Yep. And I think a part of the market theory of uh, of action, the theory of going in with like a lot of market-based reforms was that would then provoke parents to make a set of three choices. Um, exit, mm-hmm. voice, or loyalty. Mm-hmm. I'm either leaving. I'm either going to use my voice to try to fix something yep. uh, or I'm going to stay no matter what. Yep. But at least they have the information. Yeah. So- uh, what we have to do in building an open system and helping move systems to building different types of mechanisms is we have to throw out a lot of the old way of doing this. Mm. Because when I hear that story from your guy mm. on the committee, I'm like, man, I just I can imagine exactly the situation. Yeah. The committee is probably meeting once a month. Yep. They're showing information uh, that's highly tailored, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not creating context for real discussion, debate, and uh, decision-making. Yeah. And a part of what we have to say is that that way of doing committees and task force is broken. Mm-hmm. It's not working for anyone. Not for anyone. Mm-hmm. It's not working for the system. It's not working for the people. It's not actually creating opportunities for real co-creation and co-production. Uh, well, let me push back on that a little bit. It's working for someone. Otherwise, the shit would have been right. changed. Like, who is it working for? <laughs> and I can't help but think, like, the people that are, like, really comfortable already in the position that mm-hmm. they're in. And, like they need to be able to say, oh, look, we got an alumni of color on our committee and they agree with us. You know what I mean? Or like how the advocacy thing is set up of like, we got these people on the committee or we got this many people on this thing. It just seems super performative. The performance is is being rewarded to somebody. Right. You feel me? Uh, I completely agree with you. And I think I should say is that, uh, that my context of my statement is it's not working for the system if the goal is a system is is to build more trust in the system. Bet. 100%. So if the goal is not to build more trust in the system and you're like a self, you're interested in the tokenization and the Mm -hmm. kind of Christmas tree light arrangement of uh, the colors on the tree of the task force, then yeah, sure, it's going to work. But fundamentally, that is a uh, an ideology that is like is it is broken. That's the one that's broken. That's yeah. the one that's broken, and that's actually the one that is actually creating more damage to our public institutions and our society. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say though, having been inside the system in the face office in DPS in these places, I watched over and over again people with a lot of really powerful intentions about mm-hmm. actually. Uh, real community voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it crash onto the rocks and shoals of design mm. over like, how do we actually design a task force for this? Mm. And this is a part of the question at the heart of the open system, the writing and the research and the and the discussion we do out in the field is that we just have to like talk about those and, and deploy them in fundamentally different ways. Yep. Because we have this idea, there's this term called isomorphism, which is the idea is that we kind of, the system forces us to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. It's why people often critique charter schools. Hey, this was supposed to be innovation, yeah. but it like literally just looks like school supercharged. Yeah, yeah. It's isomorphism, federal regulation, state rules, and most importantly, our mental models mm-hmm. forces it back into this box. Yeah. We have to break out of the box yep. in the way that we think about community partnership, democracy building, mm. voice generation, and then using that voice generation and openness to like then actually provoke the system to do a fundamentally different thing. Facts. Facts, man. I mean, 
I was reading somewhere where they were like, yo, if you would have back in the day just asked somebody like what they wanted, uh, they would have said they wanted a faster horse. Right. They would have never gotten the car. You know right. what I mean? Because like we didn't have the mechanisms to start to dream like right. that, which is part of the reason why I'm contemplating like what does it mean to really get folks ready to to co-create and co-design? Right. Because um, I'm looking at the landscape, dog, and I, <laughs> I'm like, all right, particularly in like the advocacy arena or whatever, I'm like, we got one side that's supposed to be like the radicals mm-hmm. arguing to go back to a space that we all acknowledge fundamentally wasn't built. If not, before we even get to, you know, racism or classism or anything like that, fundamentally wasn't built for the econ- for the economy we have today in the 21st right. century. So we got radicals arguing to move backwards. And then we got like progressives and reformers arguing to stay stagnant and like really fighting to like maintain the status quo. Right. And I'm sitting here wondering like, what I'm saying is open systems is one of the few places I've seen that's really saying, all right, well, what does it mean to move forward? Right. You know what I mean? And and everything, like the, the core of what you just explained is if you just look outwards and all the surrounding mm-hmm. politics and the surrounding economy that evolves around. Right. You know what I'm saying? It, it all feeds into that base because they're playing the game as it's currently constructed. And like, I don't know, man, what does it take to for somebody to say like, fuck it, I'm playing a different game. I think it starts with people saying it. Yeah. I mean, you and me are saying it right here. Facts. And I am inspired. I'll tell you something. You know, if I was going to read MSNBC and Fox News and read the news every day, yeah. which I sometimes try not to, but I do more <laughs> than I should, yeah. I would be convinced that uh, Americans want to um, go to civil war tomorrow, mm-hmm. that we have nothing in common, mm-hmm. uh, and that we can't find common ground, mm-hmm. and that we can't actually change systems. But yet, Teray, I am working with communities every single day, every week, where that is not true. Yeah. Where people are actually really invested in finding common ground, yeah. even in variety of political uh, modalities and, and places. Yeah. Whether it's Boulder or Colorado Springs or Trinidad or Raton or uh, Breck or Denver, I'm like, I'm meeting people all the time who are like actually interested in mm-hmm. in doing that. So, also a part of your question, I think what we have to say is that. Um, they're, the people that want us to move back to something, mm-hmm. um, those are reactionaries. Mm. They're not radicals. They actually are react. They're reactionaries, mm. and we have to understand them as reactionaries. They are mythologizing a thing that never existed. Yeah, and that's what makes reactionary uh, thought so dangerous and mm. so compelling. Because we all had this idea in our head of a part of time in our life. Look, we do it in our own life, where it's like when I was living oh, in my twenties, the good yeah. old days. When I was living in my twenties, man. That, that was tough. It was hard. I like was lonely. I like was, I was, I wanted different things in my life that I uh, have now, but I look back at it. I mean, man, that was fun. <laughs> man, I was going out. We were having fun. I had friends. We were doing cool, sh- you know, cool shit in Albuquerque, you know, but now, but uh, that we do that with systems. Hmm. We do that with politics. Oh, yeah. there was this time mm-hmm. that existed. But because I say that it may mean something totally else to you and something else to me, like in the, yeah. bl- and the blurriness of going backward, what does it mean to go forward? Yeah. What does it mean to go forward? Yes, you're right. We have a folks, a bunch of folks who are, we have reactionaries who want to go backward. We have folks who are uh, actually really uh, invested in the current system so much they're not willing to uh, adjust it or open it up to yep. the communities it serves. And I hear this thought all the time. It's like, well, the community doesn't know what it wants. The community doesn't have <laughs> a sense of it. And I just say, you know, to me, that is uh, that tells me so much about whether you've actually spent time in the communities. Yeah. The reality is that people have lots of inc- incredible ideas, yeah. but we often systems 
lack the ability to channel those ideas into real manifestation of action. Mm -hmm. This is why the monthly task force meeting has to die. Mm -hmm. It has to go away. When I do task force, when we do task forces in the field at CEI, we're doing a month meeting every single week mm -hmm. or six weeks every other week or you know eight weeks every other week. Mm -hmm. We build momentum. We get mm -hmm. clear about what we're doing. I worked in task forces in DPS where I was told uh, by board members that actually to put parameters on this process would be a bad thing. We want to do whatever the community wants. Hmm. But I would say back to them, well, you, do you have the political capital to do whatever yeah, the community can you, wants? Can you deliver on that? Can you deliver on that? And of course they didn't. Yeah. And so they set the conditions so wide that what happens in the end is trust declines. Yep. So from a good place, yep. people say, let's do whatever the community wants. But the reality is any public, again, back to the public system understanding, mm -hmm. any political uh, situation is a triangulation between governance executive and the capacity of the system. Again, mm -hmm. public value. So if the board, the superintendent and the internal capacity of the organization isn't aligned that we can build a new school mm. in Montbello, mm -hmm. can we actually do it if the community wants it? No. So why, you know, now we have that moving forward yeah. because the system changed over time yep, yep. and was provoked from the outside to move in that direction. Yeah. We have to understand that dynamic. Yeah. It's and we, like tug and pull kind of a thing. Right. I, I think I realized too, like we did this, uh, we did this conversation. I, I didn't do it. I'm learning how to take a step back. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of my leadership journey, if you will, you feel me? But like, there was, there was this discussion that was made and in the, as they were debriefing me on this discussion, it was a conversation between students mm -hmm. and a conversation between teachers. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about, it was talking about like the social justice or social studies curriculum and how it's right. being implemented, et cetera. And what I realized is similar to what you said earlier, like the, the value system was actually the same mm -hmm. on both sides. And like students were really able to articulate like what that was and like right. what the problems were, et cetera. What the students couldn't see was all the additional pressures, the 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 internal capacity right. uh, and the alignment of right. the organization for them to be able to respond to this thing that they actually wanted to do. Right. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. And they were looking at the students like, yo, they just- They don't get it. They don't get it. They're not happy. And so like there was this like clash of trust and there right. wasn't, it was very clear to me, and this is just one isolated thing, but yeah. I've seen this in a variety of different spaces, that there wasn't an actual relationship there. Mm-hmm. You feel me? It right. was it was a it was a relationship of like authority and whatever the opposite of authority is. Right. And um and I think the same thing, I think if I'm hearing you right, the same thing's holding true. Like the community has this thing, but the community doesn't stand that that super well-intentioned person who probably comes from that community right. in his position trying to make some shit pop is dealing with all this additional stuff right. and barrier, and therefore they're losing credibility and it I think so much I'm realizing is boiling down to relationship. It it fundamentally boils down to relationships. That 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 kind of illuminates a, a few things. Again, this is like why we have to, and this is why the open system work is so critical, is we have to actually get clear about what are the strategies yeah. and structures necessary to, to to channel that energy into actual decision making. Yep. That's critical because a task force is useless if it doesn't actually channel back into different decision making inside the system. Yeah. So we love doing task forces, but how do we get people on those task forces? Mm -hmm. Back to this question you had about like who gets to be there. Yep. You know, one of the things I realized inside my, my time at DPS and working with folks around the country was that we got really bad at uh, task force. We would do the application. Yeah. And on the back end, we would do a user rubric or pick people, yep. but we used to get in trouble about it all the time. Yeah. And it, was, 
And, you know, there was always some issue. Oh, how did this person get on? <laughs> and so the big breakthrough a couple of years back was saying, actually, we think there's three people on any structure or committee or task force. Mm-hmm. The people that we need to be there who have social, social capital in the community, like we can't do a thing uh, in Boulder without the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make sense on, on, on school to prison pipeline. They got to be there. Yep. There are people who want to be there who will apply. Mm-hmm. And there are people who need to be there, but will never know about it because uh, yeah. they're removed from the current structure. Let's actually have a different recruitment strategy for every single one of those folks. Hmm. Let's just name the 10 people who are going to be on. The superintendent just names. There's 10 people who are going to be on this task force. We'll have an application for the other 10. And then the third group will actually do a jury selection. We'll randomly pick Hmm. parents, students to be on and say, hey, we want you on this uh, process. And by decoupling the recruitment strategy for who gets to be on the task force, and by saying it's not going to be at once a month, Here's some things that we want to tell you. Actually, what we're going to create conditions is for you to listen to each other. Yeah. For you to literally listen to each other. Yeah. We'll have students talk on a panel. We'll all have to listen. We'll have Mm. the parents talk on a panel. I'll listen. And then by the time we get to decision-making, we're going to use something very different than what we do before. We're going to use consensus-driven decision-making. We are Mm. not saying it's 50 plus one to get to a decision here. We're saying we need 90% of this room to agree Mm -hmm. on stuff. And people go, that's crazy. How can you get that? We've gotten it in tons of communities around this state and around the country. Um, And what it forces us to do in a process like this is for us to listen to each other, to listen and to understand what you were talking about before, that dilemma between students and and staff. If we just create conditions for uh, groups to come together and then actually have a process to get to something, the the power is real. Yeah, 100%. And I think a part of the way you, you build off of that trust is by actually getting some shit done as a result, right? Like two quick stories. <laughs> I remember my first time uh, in my old position, I was the the director of a community empowerment. Right. Uh, sounded like a cool title. I was like, shit. I'm, that sounds like hot shit, man. Yeah, I felt good. My first meeting in Montbello. Right. I go in, it was supposed to just be a meet and greet kind of a thing for me to get a lay of the land. Um, <laughs> this woman says, who the hell is your young ass thinking you're going to empower? Right. And I was like, damn, you're right. You know what I'm saying? Like, but she just like called me out off rip. But I'm here to empower you. (laughs) Yeah, like what does that even mean? Are you now in power? Yeah, yeah. Like who am I to think? And like, you know, that was really the push was like, you know, these um, foundations and these institutions come into our communities. They say that they're going to do what they do. They do it like halfway. And then like, we don't hear from them again. We're no longer like the shiny thing. And it was an interesting thing. We were in the meeting and they were like, yo, we need some, we need some data on something. You know, I just wrote it down, mm-hmm. you know, and like the next week, I think I actually asked you for it because I right. pulled it from A plus and, you know, got the information. I sent it over. I was like, hey, you were asking for this. You know, I found it. And she was like, that was the first time somebody in a position like that is followed up. Actually followed up. And like from there, she had my back. You right. feel me? Like she was, and I was like, damn, that's all it took. That's all it took. Right. And then in the creation of Adnium, we did these, we did the initial design labs and we were patting ourselves on the back because we presented it to the school board. We presented it to school leadership team. And when we did that, I was leaving and I was feeling good, boy. Like I was like, yo, I did this report because like that was the game. And one of the alumni, actually the same alumni that was on that committee came up to me. He's like, yo, are we actually going to do some or did we just waste our time? Right. And I was like, well, shit, what you want to do, bro? And he's like, he's like, I don't know. We learned very quickly. We had to learn how to build these, like how to move a bureaucratic system. How do mm-hmm. you how do you build power and all that stuff? So launch pad, et cetera. 
But like that was really the formation. It wasn't some like grand plan. It was like really just listening and saying like, all right, cool. We we got this consensus. We found some stuff that we want to do. Right. We figured out how to do it. And then we turned around and tried to deliver on it. And, and you know, like have that consistent like touch point mm-hmm. and bring back point. Um, and I think sometimes we stop at the, we agree. You feel me? Right. So the first time I, the first thing I said after I got that debrief was like, well, what's the low-hanging fruit that we could demonstrate that that conversation resulted from something? Right. You know, because otherwise, if I'm just showing up and I can feel good all I want, bro, but if I don't see no change, then like, what am I doing? Right. You know. Well, and this is uh, to kind of uh, pull in some open system language that we use. Is like, that's moving from co-creation to co-production. Yeah. Yeah. And we are really good in, I would say, the social justice and uh, kind of left of center community and in education and co-creation. Yeah. If we're good at co-creation. Mm-hmm. Usually we're not, to your point. We yeah. usually just kind of like fake it. <laughs> uh, but people say, oh, we created this awesome idea. Mm-hmm. No, it's different to then actually move into production of that idea with collaboration and connection with the communities you're serving. Yeah. That's the that's harder work yeah. because that's actual long-term system redesign work. Mm-hmm. We can we can always pull a design team together to come up with a new way of being. Mm-hmm. Again, actually, most people don't do that, mm-hmm. but, but that's the first step. Yeah. But then to actually move into, we're going to shift the operational capacity of this organization in a new way. Mm-hmm. That's really hard. And it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. And, the, and the older I get, the more I have appreciation for how long it, it takes. Yeah. yeah. And I also have more appreciation for how big of a win like one or two shifts are hmm. because we also have, you know, again, we're impatient. Yeah. <laughs> we want the world to change. Yeah. We're getting really anxious. We're watching uh, a lot of tragedy around uh, COVID and global mm-hmm. geopolitics. And we say, there's so much to have, we have to change. Well, but actually like if we can take short sustained bursts of hits mm-hmm. and shift systems toward openness over time. Yeah. We might hit that like tipping point. <laughs> if we can land the blow. Yeah, we, you and I have talked about this a lot. You know, the best idea is that the system inside and the system outside come together and decide what's the one thing they're going to do together. Yep, and that shifts mm-hmm. like what Edniam did with financial literacy. Yeah, to me, that is a textbook case of a power play open system move. Hmm. It essentially uh, worked both inside in the internal environment and the external environment mm-hmm. to come together to agree on like one big thing mm-hmm. that it was going to change. And then over time, what it does is it convinces people inside the system that there's nothing to fear from doing that work. Yep. And it actually builds more trust on the folks outside of the system that change is possible. That thing can happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and like as we're doing this financial literacy thing, like we're <laughs> this is the thing. This is part of the reason why, like I like I always get accused of not celebrating enough, et cetera. But I'm like, yo, the next step is this co-production the co-implementation right. and like right. that's where we're at right now like right. this this thing ain't done and that's hard work it's, it's hard and it takes time and yep. so it's like but then you have these other like external things but what's the next thing right and it's going to do what's the what's this thing what's that thing and a lot of that work don't isn't going to happen in public like that right, right? like it requires for, for too many people implementation is not sexy yeah it's not sexy but no. that's where the growth happens. You know what I mean? That's where the real change occurs. That's where the rubber hits the road for students in Denver. Bet. Yeah, exactly. Or, or students in Boulder or, or Frisco yeah. or wherever. Uh, wherever it's actually doing the shit. Right. You know? It reminds me of like, I see a lot of times like in the hood, like, <laughs> so like, you know, I'll attribute this to Nipsey because he, he did it for me was he really uh, implemented a new way of thinking about money and wealth and success. Um, to a lot of different people, right? Like he was the first one to talk about 
not the first one. I shouldn't say that, but he was he was big and talking about, you know, how to place your investments, how to use your money, ownership over shit, right? Mm-hmm. So it it changed the collective mindset. There was this like there was this understanding of it, and right. everybody embraced it. But then I see people like on Instagram. If I flip through their stories, it's a Nipsey quote about like. Yo, reinvest in the hood and buy your thing, buy your thing, buy your thing. And then you click the next story. Oh, look at my chain, dog. And so I'm like, all right, cool. So we got to the point where we recognize this as something valuable to speak on. It gives you some type of social currency to say that you understand this. The next step is, and what I think we're collectively going through as a community, at least where I'm from, is like, how do we take that and move it into co-production? Right. You know, and like my my gut instinct tells me it's not these quick get quick rich schemes and yeah. just because they got a, a spreadsheet yep it, it, it don't make it legit dog like there's there's a thing that's not sexy it's a grind it's a it's a slow right. burn it, re- it requires discipline and consistency and we're not going to see the results of it right away you know what i'm saying you're not going to be able to flash that shit right, right. away you're going to make a bunch of mistakes it's, you know what i mean and i think in the same way the, the same thing's holding true for us collectively within education. Right. It's like, we, we got a policy revision passed. Dope. Yep. If that shit don't impact kids and in 15 years, people aren't coming out of high school having different types of conversations and making different decisions with right. their money, it can we call it a win? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think you can call it a win, uh, but is it uh, a strategic, is it like a, a win- on like one, uh, you know, I guess uh, to use like a, a war metaphor, very complicated mm-hmm. metaphor, especially right now. Yeah. But like, you might win the battle, you don't win the war. Yeah. And yeah. like uh, a rapper said, uh, uh, J. Cole said, uh, it's dangerous to celebrate first downs like touchdowns. But people do. Yeah. And we do a lot of that in social justice work, education. And we actually don't think the exciting things are the implementation shifts. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, people's attention are very, are really interesting like this. And I think this is a part of our dilemma in society right now is that our we have an attention issue. Mm-hmm. We have a distraction issue. Mm-hmm. Social media is not helpful. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of also uh, like, you know, since, since the pandemic, I've like had a pretty transformative shift in how I utilize social media. Mm-hmm. Although again, Big events happen and I get sucked back into yeah. Twitter. Yeah. I have not gotten sucked I've back into Instagram. I've never Twitter feeling better about myself. No, you never feel better <laughs> after Twitter. It's, and even something I love like Star Trek, I'm just like, man, there's so much hate yeah. on this thing we all love. Like, I just like can't get over it. You know, like, okay, I can't imagine showing up to a platform and just like being mad at it, yeah. you know? And, but, you know, it's, uh, there's something going on there. Yeah. But, this question you're asking of like, okay, back to the, you know, the, the thing, if, you know, a few conversations back, what is it going to change for philanthropy? Mm-hmm. What is it going to change for system leadership? Mm-hmm. What's it going to change for organizers? That's where the open system work for me is where I want to spend my time. I want people to have common language understanding of like what I think, what we're trying to do here. Yep. Not like, hey, what's cool, man? It's like, we just need a little more family engagement. If we have a little yeah. more family engagement. No, we are in the question. We are in a situation where our democratically designed institutions have become unmoored leviathans from the communities they serve. What is a leviathan? A leviathan is a giant creature hmm. that exists in the ocean, but in the context of social structures, a large institution that we can't we can't control over. Yeah. It and we we have opportunity to huh. pull it back down to earth and say we want it to look different. Yeah. We don't want 
um, SROs in Boulder anymore. The community yeah. actually wants something that's trauma-informed, that's designed by them, and they move into co-production work. And then how do we celebrate that and then learn from it and then do another thing? Yeah. We have to pull these institutions back down to earth. And you know what? There are a lot of policy features the previous uh, version of ed reform gave us that actually enable us to do some of this work now. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's charters, innovations, uh, system design. We have this really incredible law in Colorado called, uh, where essentially every uh, school has to have a, a school accountability committee, yep. the district accountability committee. These are actual features we have in Colorado to get very Colorado. We have we have an incredible policy environment that gives us as democratic uh, members of our community enormous power and insight and ability mm -hmm. to like actually steer the ship. Mm -hmm. If we can get people inside and outside the system to use similar language about our goal. Yeah. 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 And we don't want to like cut our nose to spot our face. No. And it seems like that's kind of the trend right now. So part, another thing, I, we could talk all day. We could we make could this a three day. hour podcast. Yeah. You gave me this book called Gardens of Democracy. And um, <laughs> there's this there's this quote that I'll read. And then I'll, I'll get into my question about how the open systems can work. So it says, science tells us today that the world is a complex adaptive system. And I know we talk a lot about adaptive right. versus technical Science tells us today that the world is a complex adaptive system, not a linear equilibrium system, that the elements within it are networked, not atomized, Right. that humans operate in that system as emotional reciprocal approximators, not rational self-regarding calculators. Mm -hmm. And so I, that, that line stuck out to me. And, and he was talking about in this book, just for y'all, like the context of it is that like the, the ways by which we understand or evaluate our self-interest it's not just like is this going to make me more money and therefore it's good right mm -hmm. like otherwise a lot of people would be making a lot of different types of decisions but that like what we perceive as our self-interest is actually informed by the people that were around the social group we're trying to stick right. to us trying to keep our job like whatever the thing may be and so when i when i think about systems change systems change systems change and we're, you're making all the sense at least to me in the world and when we talk about how we have to move these systems, I'm like, well, systems aren't anything other than a construction of people that right. are making decisions on a shared belief, right? Like, and they, they've they kind of regarded the power, what's the Game of Thrones quote where he was like, uh, like power resides where people believe it does. Right. You feel me? It's like a fickle thing. Right. So I'm like, how much of this, if we could look at institutions as like a collection of agreements that people made. Mm-hmm maybe we can then start to move a little bit different and move in these institutions as opposed right. to them being these like immovable objects or barriers in our way. I don't know if I'm making any sense. You're making there. amazing amounts of sense. Uh, a few of the designing freedom yeah. by Stafford beer in order to get rid of the concept of an institution as a fixed entity, we have to get rid of the classical picture of its organization. Hmm. We have to change this notion that these things are outside of our control. And fundamentally, if we return to the, the origin of understanding government in the modern era, mm. the modern era yeah. is this idea of a social compact. Mm. This decision we all make together, yep. um, that we agree to the terms, yep. um, whether it's a constitution or things that are not named. Yep. And I think a part of us in this new moment is to understand the uh, holistic nature that we're a part of in this social compact, yeah. the narratives that build it. Fundamentally, yeah. it's all about narratives. Yeah. Narratives of change, narratives of impact, narratives of, of understanding. Yeah. 
And we have to re-engage the narratives, what Stafford Beer is talking about. We have to say, this is not a fixed thing. Mm-hmm. This was not written on stone, yep. given to us from on high. And even if it was, bro, get a new stone. It, even if it was, the stones <laughs> get smashed. Yeah. Right? And uh, part of our work is to harness the democratic power and potential inside of our communities and inside of the systems mm-hmm. uh, to redesign, to yeah. reignite, and to reimagine what's possible moving into this uh, now we're twenty twenty we're twenty two years into the twenty first century. Yeah. The, the the future is upon us. We get to build a better world. It's a time for us to build a better world. It, it is and, pe- and people all around like you yeah. and other people we get to know are out there building the better world. And a part of our moment in time, the thing that I believe that we are called to do it this moment in this moment of unbelievable social transformation is to say um, it's all within the realm of possibility. It's all in the realm of possibility. We just have to know that it's about progress, not perfection. Mm -hmm. We have to use similar language. We have to understand the core dilemma, which is that we have closed systems Mm -hmm. that have been designed with all the biases and isms and challenges of the past, and that we have to move them towards openness Mm -hmm. so that the light and energy and perspective of the communities they serve begin to inform where it goes. I love it. I love it. I think we get there. I believe we can too. Or like on some 50 Cent stuff. Change systems or die trying. <laughs> I mean, shit. I mean, I ain't going to quit. You know, we're we going to keep going, man. Um, as always, I always appreciate these conversations. I think um, one thing, and you you might have just framed it, but one thing I like to ask everybody is, uh, what is your definition of success? And um, how has it evolved? And what do you wish you would have got earlier that could have helped you achieve that? Well, what I wish I would have gotten earlier, what I wish I'd have got earlier mm-hmm. is to not worry so much mm-hmm. about things that are outside of my control, mm-hmm. but to accept them, accept the place that I was. You know, there's a quote from Emerson that I uh, quote almost daily, mm-hmm. is trust thyself. Every heart beats to that iron string. Accept the place divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men and women have always done so and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception the eternal was stirred in their heart, predominating all their being. And we are now men and women, not cowards fleeing before revolution, but redeemers and and benefactors to advance and advance on chaos and dark. Hmm. And I've been saying that quote for a long time in my life, but I think every year I understand it more deeply, which is that we have to trust the moment we're in, trust the power and potential that we've been given and understand that um, our work is to understand that there's a brilliant, huge universe out there that we don't have control over, but that we have control over how we react to it in our mm. own lives. And the older I get, the more important that becomes, mm. um, both to understand how much radical agency I have to react to the world and to build a better life and to build that better world, mm. but that I have no control over other things. Yeah. And that life exists at that hinge. Uh, <laughs> The hinge between what we can do and what the universe gives us. Yeah. I've been struggling with that heavy lately, man. I've been struggling with that heavy lately. I don't know if I'm struggling with it or as much as I'm, I've come to acknowledge it. And it's forcing me to change my frame of thinking. And that growing, that, that growing process hurts sometimes. It hurts, but that's growth. Yeah. If we like to use the gardens, the democracy you know, metaphor that we have seasons in life, we have Life, death, rebirth, renewal. Yeah. And a part of understanding that is that we're going to be broken sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish I had known that younger. Yeah. 
I wish I had known that being broken doesn't mean I'm I'm done. For real. For real. I love it, man. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you, man. All right, man. Peace. All right, y'all. I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, we will be seeing you again next week with another great guest. And, um, you know, I really encourage folks to have conversations about this stuff. If it, if it sparks something in you, um, have that conversation, whether that be in your workplace or, you know, with with the folks that you're that you're dealing with on a day to day basis. Uh, we would love to hear your all's voice. Feel free if you have any questions, if there's anything that you want us to kind of cover. Um, ednium at ednium.org is the email address and as always check out our email our website at ednium.org and i'll see y'all next week peace